Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up? Shalom. And welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hegg. And with me, as always, my friend, my teacher, my mentor, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? Hi, Caleb. Shalom Aleichem. How's it going, brother? Going well. Excited for Passover and all the wonderful uh, associative meditations on its significance for us in Yeshua. Absolutely. If, if, uh, if you don't know, Passover is coming up next week, early next week. It starts on Monday evening. And uh, if you hear things in the background today, like people bustling around, coffee makers making noise, people talking quietly. It's because the office here is full and uh, people are trying. You would think that Passover's tomorrow, but it's not. It's, uh, it's next Monday. Uh, my wife and I actually have our friends coming in uh, to stay with us. They come in tomorrow. And so we are, uh, we're also preparing, getting ready for our guests, our Oosh Bazine. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited for this year. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a good year. Are you, do you have big plans for uh, Passover, Rob? We're gonna do two. As of right now, we're doing two different seders. One will be with our local community, mm-hmm. and then we have a tradition to do an intimate one where we invite just our extended family mm-hmm. to our home, and we do it. So we're gonna do one that's. Um, uh, somewhere else that is actually on Monday night, mm-hmm. like the official more. That's going to be much more formal. Yeah, uh, that's what the community that. mean. Yeah, that's the. And then we're going to do one that's uh, less formal, but more um, uh, that we've just traditionally done for family. For family, yeah. yeah. So it's uh, we got two two in the works here. I'll tell you what the people the the ladies at the uh, at the congregation that I attend. They really do a number. They uh, we used to have a, a community Passover seder, and uh, it was great. I really enjoyed it. I was I mean we had these growing up. They were extravagant. Uh, we always we went out to the the Lewis McCord base, and there was an officers club that we would rent out, and it was all catered, and it was oh man, it was so nice. But they decided that uh, that they didn't want to do that anymore uh, for various various different reasons, and so we all went and started doing them in our homes. And now uh, the ladies in the congregation that I attend uh, try to put make sure that everyone in the community has somewhere to go for 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 Passover. Uh, so you know, people end up you know the people who are willing to host end up with you know twenty twenty five people. Wow, that's awesome. So yeah, it's it's quite the event. It's it's a lot of fun. I always have a good time on on Passover. And uh, some people cook lamb, some people don't. I believe we are cooking lamb this year, and I'm always excited for that. I'm a uh, the rest of the year, I'm a I'm a pescatarian, so uh, eating meat on Passover is really a treat. Anyway, okay, so as it is Passover uh, coming up, it's only Thursday today, and so that means that you have a couple of days to prepare. If you have never done a Passover Seder before, and if you've never celebrated Passover, Passover is not just one night. It is uh, it's it's eight. Eight days, seven days actually, seven days. Sorry, not eight, seven. Uh, it's seven days, and uh, we don't eat any leaven. 
and we take all the leaven out of our house and we have a great time with friends and family. But we're going to be talking about Passover today. We're going to be talking about the date of the Exodus. We're going to be talking about um, how long Yeshua was in the tomb and what day he was crucified on. And we're going to put our attention kind of towards Passover today. And I, I'm not sure what we're going to do next week. That might actually bleed over into next week. You know, I say every single every single show before we uh, before we get on air, I tell Rob that I feel like I am the least prepared, uh, and this is definitely no exceptions exception today. My notes, I, I started preparing my notes about five minutes before we went on, and <laughs> and I have just four very short lines, uh, and so this is going to be a lot, just kind of shooting from the hip. Uh, so I hope that I hope that people enjoy it and, and learn something. I hope I learned something. I'm excited to see your insights into some of these things. First of all, let's mention this. If you're not on the Torah Resource mailing list, then you might not know, but I plastered my paper all over uh, all over social media. I wrote a paper uh, talking about the 2012, I know I'm a little late on the draw, but the 2012 article written by Jacob Franzak on Sola Scriptura, and then my father, this all kind of ties into what we talked about last week. That's why I'm bringing it up. My father wrote a paper. It's an open letter to the IAMCS. If you listen to our show last week, we addressed both these different papers in our show. And so the literature is now out there. You can find all of it on our website, TorahResource.com. And then if you go to articles and down to confronting issues, you can find both of those papers in the confronting issues. We've had some good feedback. You know, I haven't seen as much feedback on the IAMCS open letter, um, but I have a feeling that it's going to get a little bit more uh, momentum as time goes on. So we'll see. Um, Yeah. So that's that. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so. You can follow me at Caleb Hegg. You can follow Rob on Twitter as well at Rob Van Hoff, two F's in Van Hoff. And you can also send us an email. Tell us what you think. And today is going to be, we're going to have some controversial topics about uh, the the exit, date of the Exodus and the crucifixion. So weigh in on the conversation. And, you know, uh, I'm not sure, but uh, I think you can, you can email us two different ways. Okay. You can email us radio at TorahResource.com. But you know what? I haven't gotten any emails from anyone through that email. Uh, service. So I'm not sure if it's not working or people just don't want to talk to us, Rob. So if you don't want to talk to us, fine. But if you uh, have emailed us on topics and haven't heard back, you can email me personally. C and then my last name, Heg, H-E-G-G at TorahResource.com. So Chegg at TorahResource.com. Oh yeah, I was going to say, like I say, Chegg. That's right. A lot and of my- your dad is Thag. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. A lot of my, a lot of my uh, close friends actually refer to me as Chegg. Okay, so let's talk first today about the date of the Exodus. I'll set this up, and then I'm going to let you kind of uh, tell me your views and and, uh, what you think about this. First of all, students, any students who go to Torah Resource Institute, uh, if you take the one year, I think it's the first year, it might be the second year. Anyway, uh, Ariel Berkowitz does a class, Peoples of the Ancient Near East. If you take that class, you do have to write a paper on the date of the Exodus. So if you are listening to this and have gone through that class, you probably have uh, your own opinions and your own understanding of this whole topic. It's kind of a heated topic within scholarly worlds. Kenneth Kitchen is a well-known, he's probably the leading uh, Egyptologist uh, scholar in the scholarly world right now. 
and I'm not sure. I actually read something the other day that made me think that maybe he's changed his tune. But the last I checked, Kenneth Kitchen actually uh, holds to a very late date of the Exodus, which would be about in the 1200s. Uh, do you know if I'm correct on that? Does he still? I think hold that's it? right. I think he puts it in the. 13th century, which is 12-something yeah. B.C. So Kenneth Kitchen, the leading scholar, still holds to a very late date of the Exodus. Uh, more and more scholars today are coming out and saying that it was in the 15th century B.C.E., so sometime in the 1400s. Um, I personally, I wrote my paper uh, for, for Ariel's class on this subject. However, I, uh, I used... <laughs> I used literature that is not yet published, and that was kind of a no-no. So I actually am not even allowed to refer to my uh, the a lot of a lot of what's in my paper, which is one reason that I am not going to refer to it. Instead, I asked Josh Meeks, my good friend, and uh, he also attends our our congregation, and he uh, he's one of my study partners in Hebrew and just all around. I asked him if I would be uh, if he would be willing to send me his paper, which he did. I looked over that. Josh uh, Meeks, my friend, he places the Exodus in 1446, and we'll talk a little bit about why he does that. But first, Rob, let me get your understanding of the date of the Exodus. When do you think this all came about? You know, it, you've, you've got me. <laughs> I, this is uh, You can tell this show is going to be dynamite today. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I just uh, have not. Haven't done the really, research. Yeah, for some reason, I've never been part of that world of debate. Mm. I, I'm aware mm. of uh, uh, many of the issues involved on on both the faith community side as well as the the critical historical side, mm-hmm. and um, the, the the presence. And we we had a conversation with uh, Dr. Ben Noonan. In Baltimore, yeah, it's going to air uh, next next month. Actually, I yeah, believe. and and we talked. Just, I think we touch on that just a little bit in terms of uh, Ben's expertise in loan words, and his uh, paper that he delivered. It um, might have been the paper he delivered actually a year ago uh, uh, on Egyptian loan words in the Exodus story, mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, kind of the Egyptian culture that's uh, all over the the stories and, and so and hang on we should we should clarify this for our listeners if you don't know what a loan word is you can listen to dr noonan's uh uh interview next next month throughout the month of may uh, i believe that's when it's going to air and uh basically what a loan word is is when the the writer of something borrows a word from a different language and uses it in their own language uh, we do this a little bit in English. We have, we, I mean, we do this a lot in English without realizing it. But uh, we, uh, you know, vis-a-vis, and uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not good at coming up with good examples uh, quickly. But, but basically, we take words in the English language from other languages, and we use them, uh, and they essentially become part of our language at, over time. And that's exactly what uh, Dr. Noonan's dissertation was on, which I actually have a copy of. It's a great dissertation. He's, I, I believe he's actually uh, trying to publish it right now. But basically, he's gone through uh, the, the Tanakh, uh, I believe specifically the Torah. I could be wrong on that. And he has found different loan words, words from different languages, not Hebrew, uh, that are implanted into that text, and that's so. That's what a loan word is. Keep going, Rob. Oh, and so in any case, he did deliver a paper. I think, even though our 
uh, interview with Dr. Noonan was this last uh, November 2013. I believe it was November 2012 when he actually delivered the paper specifically on the Exodus and uh, Egyptian loanwords in um, the the whole Exodus story. Mm. So uh, I, I'm I'm really fascinated by that interaction of how Egyptian culture um, is reflected in the story, which to me just like it, it's it's it, you know it's not like somebody uh, far away making up a story about something. You know, it's actually it, there's evidence all through the story that it, they got this from Egypt because a lot of these things. Uh, were very specifically Egyptian. Mm -hmm. But as to the dating, as to the precise dating um, issue, I have just been uh, maybe naively uh, blissful in my my just, uh, you know, acceptance of, of the story as it is and its impact for us rather than trying to Put a date on it. But, okay, okay. So let, let me uh, let me give a couple of my my ideas and my thoughts on uh, the date of the Exodus. First of all, I do want to say that I did write a paper on this. However, um, I I did a no no, and m- almost all of my references are from an unpublished work, uh, and it's unpublished because I, the way that archaeology works these days is a little bit weird to maybe myself and other people who aren't archaeologists. Basically what happens is, is if somebody is uh, is given the go-ahead to excavate a certain area or to uh, do some digging or whatever, uh, if they find something, they can't just tell everyone that they found it. In fact, they have to go through all these different loopholes and all this red tape to publish their work. And so there's a significant amount of, of different work here. There's uh, work not only in Egypt, but even in, in Israel right now. The uh, the last uh, ETS meeting I was at, there was the leader of the Qumran uh, community excavation that's going on right now. He had a significant amount of new information that he had, but he wasn't allowed to tell any of us what it was because it still had not been given the go-ahead to be published. So that's the same kind of thing that happened. I got my hands on a uh, paper that was not yet published and had copyright issues. And I thought that the work that was done was extremely important. So I used that, but I really wasn't supposed to use it. So I can't even refer to that on the air now. And, uh, but I will say this, I think that it, uh, the, the, the work that I'm ref- that I'm talking about now, I think that it does give some stronger evidence t- to a, uh, earlier date that is somewhere in the 1400s. Uh, my friend Josh Meeks places uh, the Exodus in 1446. I'm going to read it just a little bit out of his uh, his paper for the class Peoples of the Ancient Near East uh, for Torah Resource Institute. He says, uh, does the Bible tell us when the Exodus happened? Yes, well, sort of. The Exodus narrative, chapters 12 through 15, reveal the day, month, and the season of the Exodus, but fail to mention a year. We should remember that our modern Gregorian calendar was not being used during this time, so we would not expect a year to be given in the context of B.C. or B.C.E. anyway. The clearest date of the Exodus given in the Bible is found in 1 Kings 6.1, which states, now it came about in the fourth hundred and eighteenth year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. That's the NASB translation. Because of the 
uh, synchronism between biblical and Assyrian texts, there is some relative certainty as to when Solomon ruled. James Jack argued that Solomon's ascension could be securely fixed to 970 BC. Edward R. Thiel's chronology, I might be saying that wrong, chronology, uh, detailed in his PhD thesis dates the beginning of Solomon's reign to 971 BC. Moreover, John C. Whitcomb dates the fourth year of Solomon's reign to 966 BC. Thus, subtracting 480 years from Solomon's fourth year of reigning would yield a date of the Exodus at approximately 446 BC. I would pretty much agree with that, and uh, I actually, in my paper, I placed the date even before that. Uh, I placed the date somewhere in the four, 1460s. Um, so I've read your paper, and it's. Uh, I, I know that in your paper, Caleb, you look at the uh, the dynasties of pharaohs, that's the, correct. the generations, and uh, suggest... Uh, identifying, you know, very specifically, you know, what one or two pharaohs is probably um, yeah, and, contemporaneous. And Ariel Berkowitz, the one who uh, taught the class that we wrote these papers for, he puts the, uh, he, he believes that the children of Israel came out under Tutmos II. I believe that it was before Tutmos II. I believe that it was probably a pharaoh or maybe even two before Tutmos II. Now, all these pharaohs within these, uh, within this time frame can shift quite a bit, um, up to 50 and even more years. So, Oh, in terms of uh, even the most most uh, seasoned scholars disagree as to the exact dating of their rules. That's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. So, um, yeah. So even if you decide, okay, I think that, uh, they, you know, this pharaoh was the one who died in the Red Sea or, you know, or was the next one to reign or whatever, you still don't have a specific date. So I would actually still agree with uh, Meeks on uh, his date of 1446. I think that that's very plausible. The other thing that I notice about about um, the the dating of the Exodus is where we place the date of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is laid out, in my opinion. I'm going to be re- hopefully. I think I've uh, basically basically secured my idea that I'm going to write my dissertation on. Uh, or my thesis, not dissertation, my thesis rather, on um, Deuteronomy as a suzerain vassal Hittite renewal treaty, which I believe it's modeled after. And actually, you can only see, you can only correlate the suzerain vassal treaties of the 15th century BCE with Deuteronomy. A lot of scholars, the modern scholars today, those that don't believe that the uh, book of, De- you know, don't believe necessarily the Bible is 100% true. They place the date of De- of the writing of Deuteronomy in the 700s. And they do this because, well, there's a slew of different reasons. But I believe that it was actually, it actually lines up perfectly with the suzerain vassal treaties of the 14th century. So if Meeks is right and they came out in 1446, that would place the writing of Deuteronomy somewhere right around 1407, 1406. Uh, And that, in my opinion, lines up perfectly with the way that uh, Deuteronomy is laid out just like a suzerain vassal treaty. You have everything from 
two tablets being written. Uh, that's an exodus, of course, on Mount Sinai, but that's the renewal, the, the renewal covenant of that treaty. Uh, you have uh, the those being placed in the ark and then eventually in the temple of God. Uh, also would line up with a suzerain vassal treaty. The seal, every single king who uh, wrote a suzerain vassal treaty always had a seal. God says specifically that he puts his seal on that covenant, which is the Sabbath. Um, so you have all these different correlations, then just the format of it, you know, you have a preamble, you have a historical prologue, and then you have the blessings and the curses, so on and so forth. So all of it really lines up perfectly with a treaty of the 15th century. After you get out of the 15th century, uh, you don't have these kind of treaties anymore. So it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for Moses and the children of Israel to have a treaty with God that no longer uh, reflected the time in which they were in. So to place the Exodus in 1200 or even uh, the writing of Deuteronomy in 700 does not make a whole lot of sense to me, which is one reason that I believe that the Exodus was in the 1400s. Uh, thoughts on any of that, Rob? No, I look forward to reading your paper. Yeah, on that. so do I. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see how that all comes about. Okay, let's move to something that maybe is a little bit more up your alley. Maybe I'm wrong on this, but uh, let's talk about the crucifixion. Surely you have opinions of when Yeshua was crucified and how long he was in the tomb. Or am I wrong? Crick, insert cricket sounds here. No. <laughs> uh, you know, this is good because this last, you know, we have our Thursday afternoon Bible studies. We mm -hmm. had a full house this last uh, Thursday, and um, some people came and they have ideas about uh, some Galilean tradition of a, la a quote, last supper before a uh, the actual Passover, and um, but they couldn't cite any sources except oh they read it on the internet somewhere mm, and mm -hmm. um you know there's an effort to reconcile or to suggest that um john uh is painting yeshua actually dying while the passover lambs are dying whereas the synoptic gospels seem to portray uh the passover meal uh actually being the passover meal like before the actual uh, Passover happened, mm -hmm. or, or rather, no, I misspoke. But before, obviously, um, before Yeshua died, which means if the Synoptic Gospels are indeed the, an official Passover meal, then Yeshua did not die at the same time that the sacrificial or, or the lambs were being sacrificed. Well, so, he, okay. Now, now you've already brought up several different points here. First of all, I was contacted the other day by somebody who asked me. They said we understand that it's possible that during um, that that in the first century, possibly there was a Passover meal on the thirteenth, not the fourteenth, the night of the fourteenth. So that would you know, and they were asking me what my thoughts were on that. Well, that doesn't really work for me because the Passover could only because you ha you have this kind of ambiguous. Yeah. What did they tell you the source? 
that's the thing. I've seen this on the internet out there, but no one. I found one site that says, "Oh, in the Mishnah it says," and I'm like, "No, it's not." Sorry. No, they, I, I I think, and I could be wrong on this. I haven't found any sources, but I I think what they're trying to do is take this word "bain" between in the Hebrew. Uh, I talked to once again. I talked to Josh Meeks and uh, another one of my my friends. We have a uh, Bible study on Monday nights. We try to read Hebrew and talk about the Torah portion for the next week. So I brought this question up to them. Uh, and Josh mentioned to me that he thought it was from this Hebrew word bain between, and this is where bain arbayim, yeah, between the evenings, yeah, and this is w- and this is where we also get the whole tract or the tractate on bain hashemashot, which is the time, basically the idea of when does the when does the Sabbath start? Okay, now this gets quite technical, but basically the idea is when the sun sets and goes down below the horizon, you still have this time of of uh, light before uh, it it actually gets dark, and the whole question that the rabbis pose in this I, in this uh, debate on Bain Hashem Ashot, the times between, um, is is that Sabbath yet or not? Since it's still light out, that's the whole question that they ask. And from this d- debate, you actually get the idea that well, it's not Sabbath until you can see three stars. And so then they say, well, what's the time in between? It's called Bain Hashem Ashot. So this word Bain between is used. As Rob said, and what's the Hebrew in the passage for the for the Passover? Bain Arbayim, or, or Bain. I think it's uh, Bain Arbayim. Okay, so I think um, I think that's. I, I'll look it up real quick. I I think that's uh, where people are basically getting this idea of of uh, pre Passover Passover Seder on the thirteenth. That it you know it's ambiguous in the in the Hebrew. The problem that I see with all that is that the Passover lamb wasn't allowed to be slain until the fourteenth, right? You can't right? kill yeah. you, you can't kill the Passover lamb until the fourteenth. So Yeshua couldn't have been eating the Passover meal on the thirteenth, and then died on the fourteenth because the Passover lamb hadn't been slain yet. So he would have had to. They would have had to. Uh, prepare the meal and all that kind of stuff during the day of the 14th, then had the, the meal on the night of the 14th, and then the 15th is when he would have been crucified. Is that how you see it, Rob? I'm sorry, Caleb. I'm looking, I'm reading through <laughs> Exodus 12 here, looking for that phrase. I should probably use my computer software, but I'm looking at the hebrew here <laughs> i thought it was I, I, you can t- everyone listening i'm i apologize you can tell how ready we are for this show today well, i thought it was in exodus 12 <laughs> oh man I, we I, we are shooting from the hip i'll tell you i could be wrong i i thought i thought it was in exodus 12 but um you know it's probably uh, i'm just uh probably skipping over it here um Okay, but but still, uh, my question still stands. Do you believe that Yeshua was crucified on the morning of the fifteenth, or do you believe he was crucified on the morning of the fourteenth? I I haven't made it a statement of faith for myself because I don't know. I know that I know that it it looks from just from my from my perspective. If all I had was the Gospel of John, mm. it looks like Yeshua died at the same time. As pa- I mean, at Passover, which means whatever meal John is describing from, what is it, chapter 12 or 13 on there, um, was not what we would call a Passover, you know, official Passover. Heretic! 
No, I'm playing. If, if I remember right, <laughs> I don't know. Does John call it Passover? Does John? If I, in other words, I'm just trying to just you know put putting on a hat of like okay, let's say all I have is the Gospel of John. It would seem that there are clues in the text that um, that make that make at least from my reading, it looks like Yeshua is presented as dying at the same time, basically as the lambs. In John, you're saying? In John, if that's all I had. If that's all you had, okay. And if I read, like, for, but if I just read the Gospel of Mark, for example, it seems very much that, if all I know is Mark, that I, I come away believing that, wow, Yeshua ate, this is the Passover. And it, there's a phrase there that says, while the lambs were being slaughtered, they're, they're saying, where are we going to eat? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, in that it's happening right there, and... He has, you know, they haven't even had their meal together yet. Um, and so certainly he hasn't been on the cross yet. And so I, I confess that I, I don't know. I, I've looked at a lot of different um, things, you know, people using, some people argue that there's two different calendars, like John's using one, like uh, maybe it was like an Essene or something or some kind of other calendar, yeah. whereas the other Gospels are using a different calendar and um, in terms of framing the Gospel story. Mm-hmm. And so that that is a way to reconcile it. Yeah, you know, I, I, I actually uh, I actually uh, saw a paper read on that specific subject. What calendar was John using um, at the last ETS? Or maybe it was the SBL. But they uh, had they were arguing that it was a possibility, not that it was solid fact, but it was a possibility that uh, John was actually using uh, something different than the Jerusalem calendar. And therefore, when he says, uh, you know, basically this, this gentleman brought up maybe five or six different variants that could have been used uh, that, that would bring John to align perfectly with the other Gospels. Uh, his whole point in the paper was not to, say, not to choose one of these different, uh, you know, these variables, but rather to present the different variables so that uh, scholars could then take those variables and, and choose whatever one they like best. But basically that the, the Gospels all align with each other is, is basically what the uh, end all be all of this point was. Keep going, Rob. By the way, I found the verse. Oh, I he found the over verse. It. It's Exodus twelve six for anybody. Bain ha arbayim. So it's I had arbayim right uh, that it was a duel, but it's got the definite article. Okay, Bain so ha-arbayim. so so translate it for us. Well, between literally between the evenings, between the two evenings. So that's where you get this. Yeah, that's literally between the two evenings and because it's a it's a duel arbayim. It's not between the evenings like. More than one, or more than two. It's it's specifically in Hebrew a duel, or byim. Uh, so between the two evenings, and for example, NASB translates it as twilight. Um, but you, you know, I just I I wonder about just the logistics of of that. You know, you have how many thousands of lambs? Or you know, I don't know. You know, how do they? How do they? Uh, you know, I've heard people talk about you know the procedure or kind of the assembly line action that they had going on to, to accomplish all that and that it would have to last for several hours of the day. They'd probably start early in the morning maybe, you know, and go all day. I, I just don't know. Well, I think that's kind of where the argument comes like between the two evenings would be any time between the sunset of the 13th through the sunset of the 14th would be when the lamb was slain. So that's where I think you get people, you know, people saying, oh, well, there was a Passover Seder on the night of the 13th because that's when the lambs began to be slain. I don't actually have anything in front of me that can speak to that. I haven't found any articles or anything. So if you're listening to this and you have found articles on that, or if you do have any, uh, 
any you know references to uh, why you think that that would be the actual case. If you've seen anybody write an article on that, go ahead and shoot us an email. You can uh, send it to radio at torresource.com or send it to me personally, chegg at torresource.com, chegg at torresource.com. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about when Yeshua might have actually been crucified. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. That's right. You are listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. And one of the great parts of being able to uh, record in an office with a bunch of people around is that if somebody hears something that they disagree with or that you screwed up, that they'll jump in and uh, save you. So, everyone, welcome to the show. My father, Tim Hag. Yay. All right. So we're talking about the Passover. We're talking about when Yeshua was crucified. I said he was crucified on Friday morning. That was a mistake. Dad, tell us why. Well, the the Gospels make it clear, uh, you know, when he said it was finished, and that was in the afternoon, not in the morning. Um, so uh, the Gospels also make it clear that he was up all night, and uh, it tells us what hour uh, which was, you know, three o'clock when he, uh, when our Messiah Yeshua, uh, finally gave up his spirit. And so he, he was, uh, he was clearly not crucified in the morning. He was crucified, uh, uh, in the afternoon. There's some, there's some other things that, that, uh, obviously are clear. And that is, uh, we don't have a, enough historical information that we can absolutely trust. But the information that we do have, which seems to be corroborated between, uh, say, for instance, the Mishnah, the later Mishnah, as well as some of the comments by Josephus. Um, the, so the question that uh, you were discussing was, is it possible that Yeshua and his disciples could have uh, celebrated a Passover Seder on the, as, as the 13th of Nisan was ending mm-hmm. and the beginning of the 14th? came, that is, at the sunset of the end of the 13th and the beginning of the 14th? The answer is no from all of the data that we have. And the reason is, is because in order to offer the Passover Seder, you have to have the Passover lamb. Now, the arguments that I've heard is people say, well, he is the lamb, and he was going to be crucified later, so they didn't have the lamb. Well, this is a Torah commandment. You're supposed to eat the lamb. This is what Exodus 12 says. Okay? So, uh, you know, the thing that always bothered me was that it seems like these uh, people who are trying to make it work on the 13th, uh, the la- one of the last things Yeshua does before his death is disobey the Torah. That's impossible, okay? So, if when, when and when the disciples come and say, where should we prepare the Passover? As far as I can tell, that terminology would be, where can we prepare the Passover lamb? Because more often than not, I recognize that sometimes Pesach is used in the in the Torah to mean more than just the lamb, but most often it's used of the Passover sacrifice. So when they say, where can we prepare the Passover, they're talking about putting the lamb on a, on a spit, putting it over a fire, 
and roasting it so that they can eat it. So you have two, so we already talked about two different passages, and maybe you can touch on those real quick. You have the Hebrew word that comes in Exodus that says Bain Ha. What was it? Or There you go. So between the two evenings, can you talk about that for a few seconds? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead well, on that. Okay. First of all, it, I've never heard uh, the idea that it's between the evening of the thirteenth and evening of the fourteenth. Basically, there is the, between the evenings, that is between the time that you begin to see the sun uh, disappear and the time that it actually becomes dark. So the disappearing of the sun brings on a first evening. The 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 uh, dark uh, brings on the second evening. However. Again, if we can have, if there's any historicity in the multiple attestations of the rabbinic materials, they claim the rabbis identified the descent of the sun as the beginning of the evening. Okay, the morning was from the sunrise until when the sun was uh, at its highest point, and then when the sun began to descend towards the horizon, that began the evening. So between the evenings would be between the time that the sun begins its descent towards the horizon and the time when it's completely dark. So that would prob- that would give us the time that we need for all the, the lambs to be slaughtered, correct? Even though there were thousands of them. Uh, 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 according to rabbinic tradition, according to the Mishnah tradition, the uh, the Kohanim, there would be a hundred. There were three hundred Kohanim, or three hundred. Excuse me, three hundred Levites. Uh, no, Kohanim, uh, 300 priests who were on duty. They would stand in rows of 100 each. There were three rows. The first row would come forward, take 100 lambs, turn around. The row behind them would slaughter it and catch the blood. They would turn around and give it to the row behind them, and they would hang it on the hooks. Then the front row would go back and work with those lambs that had been slain and hung on the hooks and uh, work with them, and the other two would go forward, and they would continue to just rotate that way and so that they could slaughter a lot of lambs. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So according to Mishnah uh, Pesachim 5.1, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says, if the eve of the Passover, now the eve of the Passover is the 14th. Okay. Okay, the eve of the Passover is the 14th. If the 14th cons- coincided with the eve of the Sabbath, in other words, if the 14th was a Friday, mm-hmm. It, that is, the Passover lamb, was slaughtered at half after the sixth hour, which would be 12.30 p.m., that is, 30 minutes after noon, and offered up at half after the seventh hour, which is 1.30 p.m., and then the Passover offering was slaughtered after it. Okay, so that is, I should have said it was the daily, was the, was the daily, daily sacrifice. sacrifice, and then the Passover was after that, so it had to be after 1.30 in the afternoon. Again, by way of tradition, the slaughtering was done by 3.30, and the uh, the tradition was that the lamb needed to begin to be eaten. Some of the meat from the lamb needed to be begin eaten sometime shortly after 6 o'clock. Okay, but I want to clarify. You, you're not suggesting that the, the Passover was coincided with Shabbat because you have two preparation days in a row, correct? I'm saying that the, I'm saying that the, f- the uh, 15th of Nisan mm-hmm. was... Uh, Shabbat. The fourteenth of uh, Nisan was the Friday. Thursday was the preparation. Uh, uh, no, that's not right. That can't be right because Thursday was the preparation for the Shabbat or for the Passover, right? Thursday was the preparation for the Passover. 
which was Friday. Excuse me, Friday's the fifteenth. There you did go. Did I say? Did I say it the other yeah, way? Yeah, I'm that's, sorry. That's okay. Okay, let me let me clarify. Thursday was the fourteenth. Friday was the fifteenth. Okay, so Thursday was the preparation day for the, the first day of unleavened bread, mm-hmm. which is the fifteenth, and the fifteenth was preparation day for the weekly Sabbath. That's the only way you can have two preparation days in a row. Okay, and th- so then what do you do with John, who seems to have a different account of when the times, uh, what the times were, uh, than the other go- the, the other three gospels? Well, my suggestion is is that when he's talking about the Pesach, he's talking about the Pesach, the Chagigah sacrifice, rather than the uh, sacrifice that was eaten at the Seder, the meat that was eaten at the Seder. It says they wanted they didn't want to become unclean because they wanted to eat the Passover uh, Passover uh, sacrifice. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's some indication that that the Chagigah or the festival sacrifice that was offered each day of the festival. Because there's seventh day, seven days of the festival. Mm-hmm. And remember that Passover, the term Pesach, was in the Gospels as well as in the rabbinic literature and in other literature like uh, Josephus, is used of the whole week, not just the first day. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, it seems to me that we can see a, 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 some kind of a, a coinciding between John and the synoptics. However, I'll be the first to admit that it's a very, very difficult chronological problem. The one thing that is clear, however is that there was a preparation day when the when the uh, uh, disciples come to Yeshua and say, where should we prepare the Passover? That's a preparation day. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's the 14th. Then it says they wanted to get uh, Yeshua down off the cross and, the, and the, those who were criminals that were crucified with him down off the cross because it was a preparation day and the Sabbath was soon to come. And then we have corroboration of that in the end of Matthew where the women come to the tomb, and they see where the tomb is, but then they say because it was the Sabbath, they waited for the Sabbath to fi- be finished, and on the first day of the week they come, and he's not there. Mm-hmm. So you you have a chronology that seems to me inescapable if you accept the historical data, at least as much historical data as we have. Rob, you want to get in on any of this? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to track this. I, it, one verse that I've been chewing on is Mark fourteen twelve. It's NSB reads, it says, on the first day of unleavened bread, when, um, it says, uh, when the Passover was being sacrificed. Right. And it, it says Ethuon there, which is um, imperfect. Right. Which has the sense of, like, it was happening. Yeah. His right. disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare? It seems like this is... Uh, the fourteenth. It is. I mean, I, I mean, uh, yeah. Th- this is approaching. You see, the first day of unleavened bread, uh, the uh, in, in the first century again, as far as we can tell, and the Mishnah is our one of our best sources for this, if we accept its historicity, his, historicity at this point, is that they considered the fourteenth to be the first day of unleavened bread, not because it was a Sabbath. But because by the by noon on the fourteenth, it was ruled that everyone had to have the leaven out of their household. Unless you were in the Galil, then they gave you a little more time. But because Jerusalem as a city was expanded to be a holy place, in other words, let's back up. The Torah says that you must eat a sacrifice, any sacrifice that goes upon the altar or that is uh, part of it is gone on the altar and any other part of it is sacrificed or is eaten, excuse me. Uh, you have to eat that in a clean place. 
You can't eat it in an unclean place. You yourself have to be ritually clean, and you have to eat it in a clean place. So the dilemma that the temple uh, uh, priests had was, how are we going to accommodate all of these people eating uh, this in Jerusalem? So what they did was they expanded the boundaries of, of the clean city of Jerusalem to its extremities so that it could accommodate everyone that was coming could eat their Passover sacrifice in a clean place. In order to have it clean, according to Pesach, you had to have all the leaven gone, which means it had to be out by noon on the 14th. They therefore referred to the 14th of Nisan, the day before the first day of unleavened bread, as the first day of unleavened bread. So wouldn't that make the 13th the day of preparation then? No, it's not, because uh, they also, again, the same thing is true when we say there's seven days of Passover. Does the Torah ever talk that way? No, the Torah says there's seven days of unleavened bread. But by the time you come to the first century, and maybe earlier, Passover was used uh, commonly in the, you know, for the common person um, to refer to the whole week. The same thing is true of unleavened bread being referred to as the preparation day and the first day of unleavened bread. And so, the, the uh, granted, it, you know, the, the rabbis, uh, you know, used that terminology, or shall I say, the, the, the leaders of the Jewish community. Obviously, we don't have rabbinic literature until later. But uh, if, if, it, if it gives us a sense of what was going on in the first century, Josephus seems to uh, kind of cooperate that in a number of places. And I'd like to say one more thing. What we have in uh, Sanhedrin, in, in, the ba- in the Bavli, in the late, much later Babylonian Talmud, uh, I believe, I didn't look it up just before this because I just kind of ran in here and heard you talking. Um, <laughs> Thank uh, you, by the way. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, I believe it's 42b. I think it's Sanhedrin 42b where it talks about Yeshua. Uh, it, it, says, it says that a herald went before Yeshua, uh, Uh, before the trial of Yeshua, asking if there was anyone who could come to his defense. And no one came forward. Therefore, it says, he was hung on the eve of Pesach. Now, that would indicate the 14th, wouldn't it? Okay, so... uh, Well, well, it would, unless unless we accept what you just said, that the 14th was considered Pesach. It wasn't considered Pesach. It was considered unleavened bread, a day of unleavened bread. Oh, I see. I see. So you're distinguishing between a day of unleavened bread and, and a day and, of and the pet. first day and oh. the first day of the festival, which is the fifteenth. Okay. Now, where would the where would the Bavli get the get the historical uh, record that he was crucified on the fourteenth? That he was hung on the fourteenth, the eve of Pesach. The only place they could have gotten that is by reading John, and miss and and understanding John to be talking about that he was crucified on the fourteenth. Okay. In other words, I think what we have here is an indication of a Christian chronology that that became well known to the later rabbis who put this into into the Bavli. Now, we also know in the early centuries of the emerging Christian church there was a huge split over this, right? There were the 14ers yeah, and there were the, the 15ers. 15ers, that's right. So, uh the the 14ers apparently had uh you know uh, uh, uh the the later rabbinic authorities accepted the 14ers mm-hmm. uh, chronology and put that into the Bavli. I don't know. Rob, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a, a good uh, point, Tim. The Corda Decimanians, I think they're called. I don't know. Yeah. It's the yeah. Latin word for 14ers. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And that apparently, now I don't, I don't have it in front of me. I haven't looked at it for a while, but I, is it in Eusebius quotes, I think Polycarp or something, as mm-hmm. having learned it from John. Right. Like that, the, that in other words, he, he claims to support the 14th right. pa, uh, as the time for yeah. believers to celebrate uh, this meal, right. uh, the, this Last Supper, whatever you want to call it, uh, as taken on authoritative oral tradition, basically. Right. So the, uh, the Quattro Decimans is what you were speaking of. Thank you. That's yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, the, the 14ers goes, uh, is heavily uh, uh, weighted on uh, Eusebius uh quoting Polycarp. And, you know, there are many, I shouldn't say many, but there's numbers of other things in Eusebius which are very questionable as, as to the historicity. And and Eusebius wasn't above quoting, I think, I'm not saying that he was being deceptive, but a, a tradition that would have gone back to Polycarp, which then would have linked it to the Apostle John because uh, uh, Polycarp uh, was uh, claimed to be at least uh, uh, an acquaintance of and disciple of the Apostle John, would give it unbelievable credence. Unfortunately, we know that this is very common uh, in that time, is to try to put a tradition back into someone's mouth that would give it authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I was going to reference, my father has also written a paper, not recently, this is uh, 2011, I believe, wrote a paper, uh, and it is entitled... Oh, do I not have it here anymore? I don't have it here anymore. What's it titled? Oh, yeah, there it is. The Chronology of the Crucifixion, a Comparison of the Gospel Accounts. You can get this on Torah Resource uh, and then the articles in English page. And there's actually two papers there. There's one that's nine pages, but the one that I'm referencing is 32 pages. Since I have you here, Dad, let's talk just a little bit about this. The people are going to now wonder, what? Do you, how do you get three days out of... Uh, Yeshua being crucified, if you're correct, he was crucified on the 15th, afternoon of the 15th, that would be Friday, and then uh, he is raised Sunday morning. That's obviously not three days, as it says. He'll be in the belly of or of the earth, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, three days and three nights. Yeah, well, first of all, let me just say, I've left up on uh, you, the two articles that you reference on the English articles at Torah Resource. Um, I've left both of those up. The, the earlier one, which is dated 2002, I try to give all kinds of possibilities, and I, I don't come to a firm conclusion. You leave it open-ended. I kind of leave it open-ended. I left that up there just for people to have the information. Mm-hmm. But the, the later one that actu- actually is an excerpt from my Matthew commentary, um, I, I find this to be the most cogent, and this is the position that I take right now. Now, the question of 72 hours in the tomb. The only place where we have that explicitly apparently said is in the Matthew 14 passage which you just quoted mm-hmm. um, even as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish so the son of man now uh, if you look at the Luke parallel it's the Luke parallel to that is entirely different it doesn't talk at all about Jonah being in the belly of the fish it talks about Jonah coming and preaching to uh, to the Ninevites mm-hmm. Um I'm not sure that three days and three nights is to be given as a chronological statement. Okay. I think I think the primary point of Yeshua's words in the Mathenian text is simply to say, in the same way that Jonah went into the sea, was swallowed by a fish, and presumed to be dead, and for all practical purposes was dead, and then comes back alive and preaches to Nineveh. That coincides then with Luke. So the Son of Man will be killed, will be put into a tomb, and will rise again and preach 
Mm-hmm. So the the point that he's making is, even the Ninevites responded to Jonah's message with repentance. How come the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the majority of the Jewish people, the national Israel, is going to reject him even after he's raised from the dead? Why is that? And that becomes, I think, fodder for uh, Paul's uh, theology, where he says this was a mystery but that was revealed to him that a hardening came out, uh, was put upon Israel for the sake of taking the gospel uh, message to, to the nations. So I, I don't think that, I, I'm not one who thinks you have to find 72 hours there. I, I have an idea. It's just my own take on that. that now, I'm correct. That's only in Matthew 12, right? The, 12. The Did three... I say 14? I'm sorry. Yes, Ma- only in and, Matthew. And also in Matthew, on the 14th, Yeshua, when he's praying, he says, my soul is, uh, what does he say, unto death. Yeah. In other words, I have no problem understanding the 14th all day, as Yeshua knows this is his day, and he's already bearing the wrath of the, I mean, even though he hasn't, they haven't driven a a nail into his hand yet. Yeah. He, he knows it's as good as done. He, he. Okay. Okay. But it it, it, it does say, this is a midrash. This is all within Matthew, of course. Um, that could it you know could the fourteenth even though technically Yeshua has not uh, been on the cross yet and I mean even at the meal he says this is my blood uh, which is shed for you um, in in some spiritual sense he is already suffering okay but it, but the thing that would stand out for me Rob on that is it says even as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Speaking of the uh, speaking of Shaul, I mean that is the grave, right? So yeah, yeah, and so it's, it's okay. I, I understand your It's a bit of a yeah. midrash, but yeah. his suffering is that. In other words, even like when he was praying in the garden, uh, he says uh, his soul is more or less suffering unto death. The other thing that that comes to me, Rob, on this is how often. In fact, there's only one time, if I remember correctly, that the, that says after three days, and that's in the spurious ending of Mark. It always says on the third day, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How can you get seventy-two hours with on the third day? Hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think the gospel writers expected us to find seventy-two hours. You know, they didn't expect to find seventy-two days, and and even the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, what do they say? When Yeshua comes up and disguises himself and says, what's the problem? And they say, what, are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened? And then he says, what happened? And they said, you know, Yeshua of Nazareth, whom we thought was the Messiah, you know, has been, you know, crucified. And what's more, today is the third day. Mm, mm-hmm, yeah. And and then and then he's there with them alive. So... I I think the on the third day is a key. It's the same problem that the Septuagint translators had with that you sh- that the God ceased from His work on the seventh day, right? And so the Septuagint writers there in Genesis two change it to day. sixth day. Yeah, <laughs> but see, on the seventh day is ambiguous, or um, yeah, and on the third day is ambiguous too. Does it mean? Uh, on the day itself, does it mean after the day is finished? Uh, what what does it mean? And I think we take all of the uh, data together, and we have this clear indication. Yeshua ate a Passover Seder. He ate it, therefore, with the lamb. It could not have been 
any earlier than the afternoon and early evening of the 14th, which means he ate the Passover Seder. He and his disciples went across the book Kidron. They went to the garden. They, uh, they were, uh, Yeshua was arrested. It was early in the morning. Uh, one gospel says that they came. I think it's John. They, they came with torches. Mm-hmm. All right, so it was dark. Uh, they they come to the house of Caiaphas. They're not supposed to be doing this uh, according to later tradition, I know, but the, the Sanhedrin is not to, supposed to settle on uh, capital crimes and uh, execution except during daylight hours. And so they, they come to Caiaphas first. They come to the Praetorium. They wait. That when the, and it makes it very clear. When the sun had arisen or when the day had, had begun, they convened the Sanhedrin and then condemned him to uh, be executed. So it has to be that day that he's executed, which is the day following the evening of the Passover, and which has to be the 15th. Then, You know, I know what wrangles the hearts and minds of some Messianics, and frankly, I, I think this is too bad. It, the, the problem is, is that this is the traditional Christian view. Mm-hmm. Now, guess what? I think, in this case, the traditional Christian view is based upon good evidence. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. Anything to add to that, Rob? No, no, not at all. All right. Well, um, I think that uh, we definitely are uh, have a, a treat anytime we have someone like my father, or even uh, you know other people walking by and and decide that they're gonna they're gonna photobomb our our uh, our our radio show. And uh, we thank you so much for uh, for doing that, Dad. Appreciate it. Oh, glad to. I'm you know glad to do it. All right, well, until next time, uh, we hope that you have a wonderful Passover. And if you have your own ideas about the the time of the crucifixion and how long Yeshua was in the tomb, and, and if you disagree with my father, please let us know. I would love to see some uh, some different theories and some different evidence. I know that there's a lot of different theories and a lot of different ev- evidence out there. And uh, so we we would love to see it and contemplate that. Thank you to Josh Meeks for allowing me to read a piece of your article about the date of the Exodus. And uh, once again, thank you to my father for coming on to the show and uh, setting us straight about the uh, time of the crucifixion. Until next time, we will be in the middle of Passover the, the next time that we, uh, we are on the air. And we look forward to that. And we hope that you have a wonderful, wonderful Passover celebrating the uh, death and the resurrection of our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah.